Okay, guys, let's get started. Oh, God, that's not the bright one. Yeah, because it's too bright otherwise. Okay, so it looks like, it looks like that one doesn't work. Oh, can you hear me? No, right? You guys aren't hearing me, no? Okay. Can you hear me? You can now? Okay. So we're just going to continue. We're going to continue with abdomen. I know, I know, I know. I, um, you guys got the, the challenge questions that were given, right? I, I responded to the one question I gave you guys was the one on the aneurysm because it could, have been, it could have been either of them, right? Which, it, okay, technically it could have been, but anyway. So I gave you guys that one. I also gave the reason for the, whichever other question it was, I don't remember. There were two questions that were directly out of your textbook. The one on the child with a collapsed lung, straight out of your textbook if you read, right? Atelectasis. The other one was straight out of your textbook with regards to cardiomyopathy. So though that's right there, that's what, seven points. Well, 6.6, .6. okay? So point taken, right? You gotta read your textbook. And you guys knew that. And I could have put three questions. I could have put as many as I wanted because the key with any test, it, my tests are not perfect. No exam is perfect when an instructor has to make it up. There will always be little things here and there, right? But the key is that you will never see a question straight out of my PowerPoint. Like, I'm not going to describe anything the same way out of a PowerPoint. Because in your real exam, you're not going to get that. So um, what I'm going to do is I want to finish up abdomen. Today I have to leave, you know, so a couple of you guys came to me and asked me to just run through, you know, where you went wrong. Um, if I can't get to you guys, whoever else today, I will, I'm more than willing to do it, to go through the questions. Um, but the thing is, when you're doing a test, and this is for any, it's for anything, because I just had that conversation with the class of 22, one of the guys, Johannes, is that the way questions are, the way you should always approach a question, especially when it has a clinical uh, vignette or a clinical scenario, is that you go to what they're asking you. What is, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Which of the following is the, um, uh, the most common organism? Which of the following is, which of the, following is the mo modality of choice, right? So what you do is you always look at what they're asking you for. You go to your choices. You look at your choices. And then, then you go to the big, long paragraph. Because a lot of times, there's stuff in there that is not, it's just going to bog you down. So that's, you do it in reverse, and you'll see that when you start taking questions, because you guys are young, are young, yeah, you're young, but you're new. So if you start using that approach, I think it will be a little bit easier, okay? So just for, from moving forward. So with that being said, let's just go through abdomen. We stopped at toxic megacolon. Um, and then um, some of you guys had asked if the, you could put in some more um, challenges. I haven't gotten anything because you got, right? Nobody sent me any other challenges other than those two. So I guess you guys don't want to challenge anything else. But I gave you guys the opportunity. If, if that's the case, I have my cutoff point at the end of this week. 
All right. So if nobody, if, if you guys as a group don't go to your committee, where's Chris? Okay. So Chris, if they don't go come to you by the end of the week, that's it. That's my cutoff point. Oh, you're going to make an, okay. All right. Okay, so when we left, the, the things that we discussed so far with regards to abdomen is that we're always concerned about air where it should be and where it shouldn't be, right? So just to, just to reiterate, we also talked about fluid, right? What should have levels of fluid or some fluid, no fluid, a little bit of fluid, because those are the things that are going to help us when we come to um, things like uh, ileus. What does ileus mean? Lack of peristalsis, right? So we talked about functional ileus, we talked about adynamic or generalized ileus. Yes? When we said functional ileus, we talked about the fact that it is a de decrease in peristalsis in a particular area. We talked about the sentinel, what? Loop, right? The sentinel loop or loops, no more than two. Usually where you see those loops of bowel, it means close to, in that area you have inflammation going on, right? Remember that? Remember when I showed you one or two loops in the le right left upper quadrant, pancreatitis, you're going to start, that would, that would clue you in to say, okay, let me work up this patient for pancreatitis, anything close to the right upper quadrant, right? Gallbladder, cholecystitis. Remember with the pancreas too, it can occur in what? The epigastric area, right? The sentinel loops, yeah? Okay. And then we talked about um, adynamic or generalized ileus, where everything has slowed down. These are patients that are usually two, three, two days post-op, right? Very common, where we've had what? Especially if they've had abdominal surgery where they're messing around, right? They're moving around bowel. So that's, that's, a, common, that's a common happening, right? Um, and then we said that the difference between the generalized ileus and the functional or um, the functional ileus, meaning the one, the, what appears with the sentinel loops, is that everything is going to be dilated. So much so that you cannot tell where one begins, where small bowel begins and large bowel begins, right? So we talked about that whole, that whole concept. Do you guys remember that? Okay, any questions on that so far? We also said valvulae conventes, right? What, large or small? Bowel. Valvulae conventes, large or small bowel? Small bowel, do we normally see valvulae conventes in a patient whose bowels are, non, are not dilated? Bowel of normal size, no you don't. Austra, well obviously large bowel. Can we kind of see Austria sometimes? Yes. But the thing is with Austria is that, and the large bowel is that they will be even more dilated. So you'll be able to see them even better. Does it mean that the Austria and the valvular conventes are not there and all of a sudden they grow valvular conventes on Austria when you have a dil dilatation? No. It's just that they're not being able to be seen in an air-filled, regular air-filled bowel because you have the limitations of the resolution of radiography, right? Then we talked about air fluid levels. If your bowel, if your peristalsis is not happening, if peristalsis is not happening, what's gonna happen? Wherever you have normally have fluid, it's gonna settle there. 
So if it settles there, now you're going to have that meniscus, that look of here's the air, here's the fluid, right? Which, which bowel did we say you should not have fluid normally? Small or large? Large, because that's where everything is reabsorbed, right? So that's why when we have an organism that affects the large bowel, we have the patients suffer from like C. difficile diarrhea. What is happening is that the bowel has been in so inflamed that it's not able to reabsorb the water, so that's why it becomes diarrhea, right? Okay, so the, so the concept of fluid and what should have and what shouldn't have fluid is really important. Okay, so we're going to move on to, somebody had asked me about toxic megacolon. And with toxic megacolon, what's this one? What's this? Is this uh, generalized or is this uh, thingy ileus? Is this functional? Which ileus is this? You only have two choices. Who says generalized? It's okay, don't be scared. Okay, it is generalized. Which one's this where the arrows are pointing you to? Right? That's, that's the sentinel loops. Okay? I know you guys just had a test, right? Is it you? Oh, okay. So I'll just talk. I, I'm not gonna, yeah. Because I gotta go. I gotta do what I gotta do. So it's no problem. I understand. This is not new to me. I don't take it personally. I could always tell. So when we talk about toxic megacolon, it is a, what is it manifesting? That somewhere in the colon you have this fumulant colitis, really inflammation of the colon to the extent where fumulant means it's like out of control, okay? What is it characterized by that dilatation, right, of the large bowel and its dilatation either, and it's extreme, so it's either going to be to part of it or all of it. So what is happening here, just like when we talk about ileus, where we talked about generalized ileus, here you do have peristalsis is absent because the bowel is so inflamed that it cannot, right? It, it cannot do what it's supposed to do, so peristalsis stops. So your question might be, well, how do I know how do I know it's only large bowel? Well, you see the finger, you see the little, uh, let me show you because I don't have a pointer. So here, here are your austra, right? First of all, the size, right? The size, and second of all, there are your austra. Look at how, look how you can distinguish it, right? This sign is called what? What's this sign called? Begins with an R. Regular, right? Everybody's like, oh my God, she's asking me questions and I just studied all weekend, uh, all day for an exam. Regular, right? When you, have, when you have the dilatation, they hit each other, remember? The space isn't changing, they're getting larger, they're crammed up closer together. So they're touching shoulder to shoulder, all right? Okay, so look at toxic megacolon, right? Look at adynamic ileus. Look at Sentinel. There is a difference, right? Remember we said with, um, with functional ileus, usually the Sentinel loops are mostly small bowel, right? Where can, they, where can it occur within large bowel? In what area? Begins with a C. C come, right? Okay? So this is, looks completely different. Yes? Okay, so how would the patient present? 
progressive abdominal distension. So it's not an acute, it's not acute, it's over a period of time. <clears throat> and the patient is toxic, febrile, and obtunded. What does obtunded mean? You guys can Google it. What does it mean? Loss of consciousness. Yeah, they're like totally out of it, right? Because they're so toxic. So when you're looking at a, when you get a clinical scenario, you wanna, you wanna look for the patient who's toxic, the patient has progressive abdominal distension, the patient who's febrile, right? These patients will have some sort of, some sort of history of maybe a, a gastrointestinal infection. <clears throat> Sometimes it can occur in patients with um, ulcerative colitis, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so what do we have happening? What's the one, what's the one on your left? There are three different scenarios. What is the one on your left? Generalized ileus, right? See how different it looks? What's the one in the middle? Large or small bowel? Large, right? Yeah, so that, that's, that could be toxic. It's, it's not as large for toxic, but it's definitely dilatation, excessive dilatation of the large bowel, right? And what's the one on all the way to the end? Huh? No, that's normal. Remember we said, yeah, the thing is, because sometimes you're looking for all the who, bells and whistles. So when there ain't no bells and whistles, it's usually normal. Why is it normal? Because you can actually trace, right? What, what part of the colon is this? Ascending, yes? Transverse, descending, splenic flexure, hepatic flexure. Okay? I know you're, you're, you, when you go back and you look at it and you listen, it'll make sense. Yeah, it does, because, but, but remember, the ascending colon is usually, yeah, a little bit larger. Yeah? Oh, no, because I've seen hands. So the one, on the, the one on your left is the generalized ileus. The one in the middle is dilatation, right, of the large bowel, not, not necessarily fumulant, colitis, uh, not necessarily the toxic megacolon, but it, the fact is that it is large bowel dilatation for whatever um, reason. And then the one on the end is normal, the other end. So let's move to mechanical obstruction. All right. So when we talk about mechanical obstruction, we're not talking about peristalsis being the reason, lack of peristalsis being the reason why we have um, dilatation of the bowel. Now we're talking about something organic, an actual structural, right? So a physical organic obstructing lesion, which presents the intestinal content from, being, from, going, to, from going to into the large, large uh, stomach into small intestine or small intestine into large intestine. So it's basically an obstruction. There's something that's obstructing it. We usually classify it according to which um, bowel is obstructed. Small SBO, small bowel obstruction, or large bowel obstruction, LBO. So those are the abbreviations, okay? So what we're seeing is 
that something is obstructing it. It's not a peristalsis, it's not going on, right? You still have peristalsis, but it's reached a point where it can't go, it, peristalsis is going on, but the contents cannot move through because something is obstructing it from moving through. So that's what bowel obstruction is about. So when it comes to small bowel obstruction, what is the initial, but also what has a limited use is abdominal radiography. So limited use, right? But if they, if they are going to use it, it's going to be the first one they're going to use. So initially, that's limited. What is your modality of choice? Abdomen and pelvic CT with IV contrast. Okay, so that's your modality of choice. So am I going to ask you what's the initial? No. But if I show you, I can show you an abdomen radiograph and ask you, is this an obstruction versus an ileus? Okay, I can also give you the, the abdominal radiograph and the CT of either one to sort of help you, right? I can give you both so that it, if you, you have something else to fall back on, okay? So what do we know about small bowel obstructions? The most important thing is the most common cause are adhesions. Do adhesions occur two to three days after abdominal surgery? No, they do not. So that's the first thing. If I give a scenario on a patient who has small bowel obstruction will have a history of abdominal surgery, a past medical history that entails months, probably a month. It's not going to say this is a post-op patient because a post-op patient can be in, a, uh, in the hospital for a week, right? So the key is they, these are not your post-op patients. These are patients who've had some type of abdominal or pelvic surgery in the past. And what happens is adhesions are what? Scar tissue, right? So the key with small bowel obstruction, the most common cause are adhesions. The key with this is that you have these central dilated loops, right? Proximal to the obstruction. So when we mean which one is proximal and which one is, what is, what is the difference between proximal and distal? So if I, if I show you, if I show you this, right, where, which, which is proximal and which is distal? So this is proximal. Oh my God, this is really bad. And this is distal, right? I'm not saying it's going to look like this distal. I'm just asking proximal versus distal. So with that being said, what's going to happen is if I have something, if I have, an, if I have let's say, a water hose, right? Well, that's kind of hard. If I have a balloon, you know sometimes how they, you fill the water balloon and then you squeeze certain parts and then all the water flows to the top and then it's flat at the lower half? That's basically what uh, bowel obstruction can look like because you're restricting, right? So if you are constricting or restricting flow, what's going to happen is that peristalsis is still going on. This is not an ileus. This is not a problem with, with peristalsis. This is a problem with the flow cannot, the contents cannot get through the way they should because there's something that's restricting it. Yes? Okay, so the question is, can obstruction cause ileus? Not, it will slow down the peristalsis to some point, but it's not the starting point.
okay? Because the, because the thing is, it has nothing to do with um, the fact that you have, what did, it, what did we say could happen? What can cause an ileus? Inflammation, infection, right? So the key is that eventually it will, to some point, peristalsis will not be able to continue, but it's not the starting point. So don't, so yeah, so shh, shh, here, I'm giving you an eraser. Erase that, erase that thought process for this, for this aspect so you don't get them that blurring across lines, okay? But that's a good point. So the key is that um, you're going to have the predominantly central dilated loops of bowel proximal to the obstruction. You are going to see your valvulae conventes, whether it's an ileus or whether it's an obstruction, because why do we see valvular, valvular conventes? Because your bowel is dilated. It doesn't matter how the process came about for the bowel to be dilated, the small bowel in this case. The fact is that there is too much air in the bowel than should be normally. So it doesn't matter what, why, that it's going to, you're always going to be able to see the valvular conventes, right? The other thing is like I just showed you. So what's going to happen is anything beyond where the obstruction is, is going to be flat. Okay? So it's going to be flat. Why? Like I said with the balloon, because nothing can get beyond the obstruction or very little can get beyond the obstruction. So it's going to, it's going to be flatter. Most common cause are adhesions. So when will we use CT, dilated small bowel loops greater than 2.5 centimeters with air-filled levels on the abdominal x-ray. So back to initial limited use, we said radiography, right? CT is your modality of choice. So what they're saying is that in this statement, if we do the abdominal x-ray initially, we are going to move on to CT, especially if the bowel dilation is greater than the 2.5, okay? And their air fluid levels. Now, what is the purpose? What, what is the purpose of the CT? Confirming the diagnosis, characterizing the severity. How severe is the obstruction? Do we need to take this patient directly into surgery and to fix that obstruction? identifies the cause and the transition point. Because remember what we said is that you know, you know proximally it's going to be dilated, right? We know distally it's going to be flattened. We need to know where is the obstruction? Where do we transition from dilated to flattened? So this will give us the location of the actual obstruction. And that's, that's what CT helps with because it's the three-dimensional concept behind it. Make sense? Yes. You well, okay. So theoretically, the question is: if it's less than two point five, do you not do the CT? Theoretically, you don't need to. But what do we know in real life? They're not going to take that chance. They will do the CT. Yes. Yes. That's where the mass is. So the question is, was I saying that where you go from dilatation to flatten, where that transition takes place, that's where, that's the transition zone. That's where the obstruction is. 
So if you had a water balloon and you're squeezing it in the middle, your hand is the obstruction, right? So above it's going to be really, really filled with fluid. Underneath is going to be very little, depending on where you have it, right? And then, so your hand, where your hand is, that's your transition point. It's just where you're going from dilatated to flattened. Any questions on that? So it looks, so the scenario is completely different to uh, localized ileus, right? Okay, so we're going to get to the pictures. Okay, so we're going to get to the pictures. And then, okay, so transition point and identifying complications. So let's look at the pictures tell a thousand words. Okay, so when we talked about air fluid levels, right, remember the whole concept of air of fluid is in an upright, just like with a uh, plural effusion. Remember with plural effusions when we talked about the um, decubitus view and using gravity. It's the same concept here with regards to um, the abdominal x-ray, right? Looking at an erect and a supine, doing the erect and supine if the erect can be done on the patient. You can also use what view? Uh, abdo uh, lateral decubitus abdominal, right? Same concept because you're looking at water. So if the patient is supine and you cannot do the erect, you can do the lateral decubitus. Same concept, it ha the patient has to be lying. Would it matter what side the patient is lying on? No, because we don't have a right or left. So we'll do a lateral decubitus, let the fluid fall, and look for the air fluid levels. If, uh-oh. Oh, okay, is he asking? Oh, yeah. Oh, is he just observing? Oh, he can look in. Oh, he just wants to look in. Okay. So the thing is, um, so you have the erect. And then if you look at the supine, right, you cannot see. You cannot see the, the what? What can you not see? The meniscus. Exactly. Why? Because you don't have gravity. So here, are, here is your air fluid. These are your air fluid levels. Still seeing the valvulae conventis because they're still dilated, right? Yes? It is not a sentinel loop. Why is it not a sentinel loop? Because you have more than two. Yes? Did we see air fluid levels in the sentinel loops? No, we don't. If you hear the term step ladder appearance, it's talking about this. This is like a step ladder because they talk, you know, which to me, I, I don't know why they call it a step ladder, but... I always try to figure out which side is the step ladder. Like, what are you stepping up? But it's called the step ladder, the step ladder appearance, because radiologists love. They love to name things. So they'll call it the step ladder appearance. What's this? That's your gastric bubble, right? Oh, hi. Oh, you're just curious? Oh, no problem. You can, I'm, I'm okay with it. You guys okay? You can have a seat if you want. <laughs> huh? Oh, trust me, he'll be running out of here soon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. The stepladder appearance. So those air fluid levels, they call those the stepladder appearance. Air fluid levels. Because it, it looks like you're a stepladder. I, I, 
I've been teaching this for 10 years. I'm still trying to figure out this step ladder. But use your, my imagination is probably not as great as yours. But it's because of these steps. I guess it's like steps and they, you're stepping up. Yes. So this, this is air and you, you don't see the fluid. The fluid is superimposed, right? So what they're saying is that you remember the body never has anything straight line. There's nothing in our bodies that are straight line. But like, like we talked about with the plural effusion, right? So if you have a, if we remember the same thing with the glass of, the glass of water, you have the meniscus, this is air, this is fluid, right? It's the, same, it's the same concept. The only difference here now is that you're not seeing, you, you, can't, you can't distinguish all the fluid on the upright. So where it ends, that's, that's where the fluid begins. Where the air ends, that's where the fluid begins. They're all there. This is air fluid, air fluid level, air fluid level, air fluid levels, air fluid level, air fluid level on both sides. You see what I'm saying? Oh, no problem. Yes? We're okay? Okay, so why does the supine look different? Why can you not see air fluid levels? Because of what? You don't have what helping you? Gravity, right? So you don't have gravity. So everything is just distributed. The air is just distributed. Um, and then when you look at your CT scan, so with the CT, just keep, keep focused on... The, so this is your right kidney, descending colon. So let's focus on this area here. Look at the dilated loop of bowel. Here's your air fluid levels. So you see how you could distinguish fluid now, right? Because it's a cross section. So it's not only is it a cross section, but the, you also have, you don't even need the patient to be erect for that, right? Because now the patient's lying down and now you're imaging 360 degrees. So it's giving you that three-dimensional look. So what they're saying, so what it's showing here is, here is your large dilated loop of bowel. So is that going to be, um, is that where your transition point is? Can any, well, aside from the fact it has an arrow, where would be the transition? Here's your transition point. Everything's dilated, air fluid levels. Look at how flat. Remember too, we know it's large bowel because of what? Where is it, where is it, um, where is it relative to the anatomy? Periphery, right? Right, right, it's the periphery, same concept, it's, it's the same, oh God, can I get a marker, this thing's, oh no, I saw some, wait, wait, these might work. So remember, even though, oh God, no, it doesn't really work, I think we're going to throw those out, sorry, I should just, oh, I'm going to use purple today, okay, so remember that with cross-sectional anatomy, right, you still, this is what? The patient's lying down, right? So this is the posterior, anterior, right? And then these are, this is laterals, right? This is more medial and this is lateral. But in fact, the key is that you're still, central is going to be small bowel and peripheral is still going to be your large bowel. So if I had shown you uh, which view, if I had shown you which view would you be able to, 
correlated better to your radiographs. If I showed you the coronal, so your coronal view, right, of your patient, would it look like the one on your left, the first one or the second one? Let's see. It's a, it's a CT scan. Which one would it look more like? The one, on the, the one in the middle, right? Because you don't have gravity, the patient's lying down. Make sense? But with the axial view, right? With the axial view, because of how you're cutting it, it's almost like you're, the patient is standing up and you're cutting it. So that's why you can, you, it still has that gravity effect because of the plane through which you're, you're slicing it. So that would be, it would look more as the small bowel. And the key is the transition. So you see how flat it is? So this is your transition point. Just where you go from, all of this is dilated, right? Here's your air fluid level. The reason why this one looks circular and this one looks longitudinal is because remember, bowel is looped around, right? So when we cut it, right, some will look as if you're looking at it horizontal, but some of the bowel is as if it's coming out at you. So that's what that circular one looks like. It's just coming out at you because it's, we don't know which loop we're looking at. Maybe the way it's looped around and you know, the axial view shows you it's because it's looking like this now, it's coming out at you. Make sense? Yes. That, I'm sorry? No, no, what, so the question was, am I, am I saying that because the, the radiopacity, the whiteness can go through different levels, that's why it's, it's coming out at you? Yeah. No, what I'm saying is that it is a loop. No, not that it's several loops. What I'm saying is that that is a different, the way the loop is positioned is that when you do, when the actual view is done, it is looking, it's as if it's looking at you this way rather than a loop that's this way. Just positionally where it is in the bowel. Yes. It could be, yes, it could be at a flexure depending because it is on the upper what? It's on the upper left-hand corner. It also depends on how far down the slice we are, right? Because the thing is with, with the, just like with CT, you know, you can scroll up and down, right? So it really depends on, on what level we're, at what level we're at. Any other questions on this? So what, did, what do we have to remember about small bowel obstruction? What's the key thing in the patient's presentation? What's the key thing? What should you look? Four. Huh? Now, come out in the clinical scenario. What would, what would you need to focus on? Past, the past surgical history, abdominal or pelvic surgery. Not, not a post-op patient. If it was a post-op patient, what would, we be, what would you be thinking of? Alias, what kind of alias? Uh-huh. Which alias, generalized or, or um, functional, huh? Generalized, it's still alias, right? Yeah? 
A patient who comes in with epigastric pain, right? You run the labs, the lipase and the amylase are, are high. And they do, they do an abdominal radiograph. What do you expect, what could you see? A patient who comes in with epigastric pain, you run labs, amylase, amylase and lipase. And then you do your abdominal radiograph. What would you think you would see? Huh? You'd see what? A localized ileus, right? A sentinel loop. Where would you see the sentinel loop? In the epigast, you'll see it in the epigastric area, or you may see it pushed off to the left upper quadrant. So scenario, lipase and amylase are the ones that we, we run for pancreatitis. Yeah? Y'all are looking a little brighter. You're waking up after your exam. Okay, so what am I looking at here? Was that a sneeze? Bless you if it was, if not. You just got additional blessing. So what are we looking at here? So what are these two? Uh-huh. So this is the air fluid levels, right? So now they don't look as straight, right? But these are your air fluid levels. What is this called? This white, these radiopacities? That's your regular sign. And what view is this? That's your decubitus view. So you see now they, they're really very straight, right? Yes? Any questions? So let's do, let's do mechanical large bowel and then you guys could go um, for a break, okay? So once again, same concept. What may be your initial modality? Abdominal series, right? And what is your modality of choice? Same thing, CT of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast, right? Okay, so look at this. Looks completely different, no? Does it? So what happens is the colon, once again, same, it's the same concept, whether it's large or small. Wherever the obstruction is, proximal to it will be dilated, right? And um, distal, distal to it will be flat, right? Distal to it will be flat, yes? Okay, so it's the same concept. The only difference is, what are, we, what are we looking at? We're still going to have air fluid levels because it's still an obstruction. We're still going to have, what are we now going to have? You're gonna have little or no air in the rectum or the sigmoid. What did we say about air in the, what did we say about air in the, um, air in the, Rectum or sigmoid, we always have, on a normal, we always have it, right? You always have air in the rectum and the sigmoid, but if you have an obstruction, you're not, it's gonna be flattened, right, in the large bowel because the air is not coming through. What are the two most common causes now? It's not, it's not a, a abdominal, it's not adhesions, it's more tumors, right, or volvulus, and when we talk about volvulus, we talk about a twisting. Volvulus means a twisting. So let's look at this. So we're looking here. This is a mechanical large bowel. 
Ulstra, right? Everything looks dilated. Any air, usually you should have air present here, but we don't. And then this is, this is where, this is your transition. You see where it stops? That's your transition zone. Ah, where's my cursor? So all of a sudden there's no air beyond there. That's your transition zone. This is an, and then this is a patient, this is an upright, so you, you, you see the air fluid levels. This, is, this doesn't look like a step ladder appearance because large bowel is more to the periphery. It's not central, it's not looped centrally, okay? So this is, this is, but you still have your air fluid levels because we're supposed to, we're not supposed to have any fluid at all, right? In the large bowel, but we do now in the area that is proximal to the obstruction because nothing's passing through. So everything, everything that was happening above, the fluid above, right, is now going to settle in the large bowel because the large bowel cannot function because it's so dilated. So that's why it's settling. Um, yes? Here. I'm sure you guys see it better on your small screen. But this is your, this is, ah, where is it? Where is it? Here's your transition. And then when it comes to the CT, it's, all of this is your dilated, right? All of it is dilated. It's very difficult to see the transition. These are, these are still bowel. So it's, I could tell you that it's very difficult to see it here, but this, this almost looks like everything beyond, from here and beyond is flattened. But very difficult to see on this particular slice. If you had moved, if I had scrolling through, it would be easier. But the key, the key is that it's because of tumors of volvulus, little or no air in the rectum or the sigmoid, you're still going to have your air fluid levels and you're still going to have dilatation all the way beyond. And the reason why it's very hard to see the dilatation of this small bowel is because the large bowel is so distended that on a, that on an, uh, a radiograph like this, you, you, can't, you can't picture the, the, large, the small bowel that's stationed behind it. So the key is don't try and look for the small bowel that will be dilated. Just focus mostly on the history of the patient. Look for things like a patient had a, a, a patients like this could be constipated for weeks because you have a mass, right? So that could be something in the patient's history. And we'll go through some questions as well. Any questions on that? So here we have dilated cecum, another, another, um, another large bowel obstruction. This is, this is a barrier, a barium enema. So here is your transition point. This patient has a colon cancer. So you see the stricture. It's, it's called the apple core sign because this is like the core of the apple. So every time, uh, if you ever see the apple core sign, what it's saying is that you have the large distension. Oops, I'm sorry, I'm scratching here. So it, it kind of looks like the core of an apple, 
well, my drawing's pretty bad, but but this is this. What's happening is that you have the actual within the walls of the it, and the the masses within the walls of the the actual large bowel. It's not from this. It's not outside. It's inside. So this is your mass, right? This is the mass, right? No, I'm not, so I'm not sure the dial. I'm just showing you where the mass is. The mass is not outside. The mass is within. Because if the mass was outside, you wouldn't be using colonoscopies to determine if there's any mass in, within, right? So it looks like the mass is outside, because I've told you about, you know, like the water balloon. But in this, but in the, that's just for you to visualize. But when it comes to the mass, it's within, within the lumen. So this, should, this is air filled, and then what you have is the masses within, whether it's on one side or both sides, but that, that's why it's called the apple core sinus, because there's that very thin stricture. That's the only area where the contrast was able to get through to be able to get to the other side. And what's this called again? The regular sign. I'm going to make you guys remember that. And here you can appreciate, so the arrow here is showing you a transition. So this one, the cut is much lower down, and it's showing you the transition, right? And it's showing you here that this is all bowel, right? So this is the dilated bowel. This soft, this soft tissue, this gray, that's the mass within the walls of the large bowel. Here, you see where the arrow is? So you see all of this white? Soft, this gray, this gray soft tissue area, that's the, that's the mass within it. Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who's talking to me because you're so, what is it? It'll still be called the water. Yes, it still is the apple core sign, but for large bowel obstruction because it's due to tumors. So the question is, is the apple core sign for all obstructions, not for the small bowel, for large, because remember, it's tumors that create, that cause, right? A tumor within the colon that causes um, a large bowel obstruction, okay? Any questions on that? Yes. Usually, well, okay, so it's, it's usually within the lumen if it's colon cancer. Can you have, so the question is, is the, is the mass within the lumen of the bowel? Yeah, that's why, you know, colon cancer, yes, it's within. Can you have masses outside, growing outside? Yes, you can. You can, and they could, they could cause a stricture, but in the case of like colon cancer, tumors that cause, the colon is it's within the, col the walls of the colon itself. So one last thing before we go so we could finish up this obstruction is intestinal volvulus. So when we talk about volvulus, it means that what's happening is that you have the bowel is twisted along its mesentery. So remember, the thing with the mesentery, which, which parts of the bowel we said are on its mesentery? Which ones are fixed? The ascending and the descending are fixed, right? 
the sigmoid and the which one? Transverse or not? So that's why when we talk about valvulus, which is a twisting, you can have twisting of the gastric, twist mid-gut valvulus, cecal. It can be anywhere. The most common is the sigmoid valvulus. And there's a, they call it the coffee bean sign. So just picture when you go to Starbucks and you see all the coffee beans or Dunkin' Donuts. You know how they have all the little coffee beans? What does a coffee bean look like? A coffee bean with my bad drawing is, looks like this, right? So if you could picture that and superimpose it, it's called the, uh, once again, they have all these signs, right? So this is your coffee bean sign. Here's your, here is your regular sign, and all of this is the looping of the small, of the large bowel. So it's called uh, the sigmoid valvulus. It's called the coffee bean sign. So the whole thing is the coffee bean sign? Yes, the whole, the whole loop one on the other, and it's just the shape of it. They just think it looks like a coffee bean. So that's sigmoid valvulus. Most common kind of valvulus. It can happen in the cecal, it can happen mid-gut, it can happen, the stomach can twist upon itself. Okay? Okay, so when, when you come back, we'll, we'll talk about pneumoperitoneum. Okay. All right, so. Okay, guys, so let's, um, let's move on, move on through to as much as we can. Wee, wee, wee. Okay, so now we're taking, now we're, we're, still, we're still doing our abdomen, but we're going to talk about um, a pneumoperitoneum. So just like pneumothorax means air in the, where, what is a pneumothorax again? Air in the where? Plural space. All right. Okay. So can you see parietal and visceral lying in a normal chest? No. You can't. A pneumothorax, the, the parietal, the visceral lying moves away, right? That was the whole idea. So with free gas or pneumoperitoneum, the most sensitive is your erect chest x-ray. So what they're saying here is that a patient comes in, the patient does still have an acute abdomen, still distended. We do the abdominal series, but you're highly suspicious of a pneumoperitoneum, so you're going to add. The additional view is your erect chest radiograph. And the reason being is that the pneumoperitoneum means that you have air trapped within the peritoneal cavity. Pneumothorax is air within the pleural space where there's isn't supposed to be any, it's only supposed to be fluid. With a pneumoperitoneum, it's trapped in the peritoneal cavity, right? But it is not within, and that's the key. It's not within the lumen of the GI tract. So that's why you don't see distended bowel, right? It's outside. So what is it going to do? Well, if you have an erect chest x-ray right the reason why you want an erect chest x-ray is because when we do when you do a, a, an x-ray of the chest it's positioned usually from about the um what's this thing called sternal notch when they're doing the image right it's usually positioned between the sternal notch and just just underneath the rib cage when you do the abdomen 
they usually go a little bit down from the xiphoid process. So the key is that you want to make sure you don't miss anything in between because when you do the abdominal x-ray, remember the technicality of it is going to be different in terms of the penetrating power of the beam and all that hoo-ha stuff. So what you want is that you want to be able to see what's happening under the diaphragm because that's what happens there is that now you have air that's floating around and now it gets trapped. So if it is on the left side, you're going to see which is where it, ha it happened to settle on this side. What do you see here? You see the air under the diaphragm between the stomach. How do I know this is the stomach? Because that's a gastric bubble and the diaphragm. So it gets trapped. So all of this is air that's trapped. If the air gets trapped on the on the right hemi under the right hemi diaphragm now you're going to be able to see what the edge of the liver because remember before when we looked at the chest when we looked at the chest radiograph we were never we said that um, the reason why you could distinguish right from left is because you are able to um, back to the lungs drama Okay, so remember we said that um, what you have your ga the gastric bubble helps you to distinguish between the, um, the left and the right. And we said here that the liver's here, but we can't see the edge of the liver because of the soft tissue density. It's just not present. You can't tell where it ends and begins. However, if you have air trapped under, oh, and this doesn't look like a diagram, diaphragm. If you have air trapped here, now you, you may be able to distinguish the edge of the liver. So this is where the air is, and now you can see the edge of the liver. So on this side, you can see it trapped between the gastric bubble and the diaphragm. So all of this will be air. If, it's more, if it ends up being trapped more on the right side, now you will be able to see the line of the liver. Sounds like a what? Like a plural? No, like a pneumothorax. Right? Same concept. So if it's more on the right side, now you see the viscera, the viscera lining of the liver, whereas before you couldn't. So that's like your pneumothorax. Any questions on that? So the key is the upright because we're using gravity, right? We're using gravity to try and distinguish, tell us if you have, um, if you have free air floating around in the cavity. What are, some of the, what are some of the causes, right? What can cause uh, a pneumoperitoneum, per perforated ulcer, bowel perforation, or when, patient is, when a patient has had laparoscopic surgery, they inflate the bowel with air. So that air could have ended up being what? Not staying within the bowel and end up you know, getting into the peritoneal space because you're, you're doing it yourself. It's the air is being put in by the, um, the physician who's doing the laparoscopic surgery. If it is due to a bowel perforation, that is a surgical emergency because you don't want, your patient could develop sepsis, right? Because all that bacteria, all of the feces, everything that's trapped within the large bowel can seep out into the peritoneal space, yes. Oh, you mean if it will go up into? 
No, it, it wouldn't. Because they're two separate. Because what, what it does is that the two cavities, the diaphragm is the one that actually does what? Pre separates the thoracic from the abdominal area. So the diaphragm stays, unless your diaphragm is perforated. Yes, you have to have a perforation of the diaphragm for it to float all the way up. But, but the diaphragm is your, is your muscular layer, remember? that separates the abdominal, from, the abdominal pelvic um, uh, area from the region from the thoracic. But that's a good question. Um, what was I gonna say? Bowel perforation. What did we say about bowel perforation? Where did we come across bowel perforation in radiology way back to the beginning? Aha. Uh -huh. What did we say? Barium. Remember, we said that you cannot use barium in any suspected bowel perforation because you'll get what? The necrosis, right? So that's why um, in a case like this, you don't, you don't want to use anything with contrast or anything like that, which you don't anyway. So what I did was this little, this is like your little um, review um, telling you where do you see, how does each one relate to air in the rectum or sigmoid, which we're always supposed to have, air in the small bowel, right? And air in the large bowel. So this is a good representation of a nice little table. Um, what I would also do is when you're looking at that table, see if you can have diagrams, see if you can um, read up on, you know, get um, descriptions and stuff. But this usually, but this usually helps. So you see when it says localized ileus, right? two to three distended loops in the small bowel, but you will have air in the rectum, anois sigmoid, because it's not, oh, look, I'm pointing with my finger on the screen, sorry. <laughs> oh, because the reason why you still have air in the rectum and sigmoid, because this is not a mechanical obstruction, remember? Yes? But look at small bowel. Multiple dilated loops, no air in the large bowel or below, because that's a collapse. Remember when we talked about um, obstructions and distal versus um, proximal, proximal versus distal. So that's just a, a representation of what, what I've shown you on all along. So it's a good review to go back to. Any questions? Oh, oh look what's coming to haunt you. Abdominal aortic aneurysm. Ultrasound, right, is your initial screening. Your modality of choice is your CT angiogram. Yes? Now, that's a CTA, right? Now, the, the, how does a patient with an abdominal aortic aneurysm, a pulsatile mass? You guys are doing physical exam, right? Physical diagnosis. When you, do, when, you do your abdominal, when you do your abdominal exam, your patient's supposed to have their feet flat? Oh, you reached there yet? Have you guys reached there yet? No, you haven't done abdominal yet. Oh, no, no, abdominal is a regular exam. So when you, when you, when you are um, auscultating and palpating the abdominal area, when you reach that part of physical diagnosis, the patient's supposed to have their feet flat? No, you're supposed to raise the knee, right? So your patient in that position, and then we talk about auscultating, right? You auscultate the quadrants to hear for the bowel sounds, and you also for the vasculature, right? 
So with an abdominal aortic aneurysm, these patients present with what they call a pulsatile mass. So, it's a, it's, so that's usually um, signs of an aneurysm. Um, usually bedside ultrasound is ideal for the initial screening and for patients with any hemodynamic compromise because you don't want to move them. You want to you wanna answer really quick. Um, scanning, right, with, with IV contrast in your stable patient. Remember what we know about an aneurysm. It's an outpocketing. Um, for those who cannot have IV contrast, you can still get some information, right? On a, if you need to, you do the CT on a patient who, who does not have contrast, who can't take contrast. So once again, there's, your, there's the CT, there's a, vis a visual of what an abdominal aortic aneurysm can look like. So this is with contrast. So this is the lumen, but the gray area around it is actually, right, the thrombus. And this patient also has calcifications within the wall of the, um, of the abdominal aorta. We saw those, we talked about those calcifications, right? In the, um, when we talked about the thoracic, the aorta, right, when in chest, same concept. We talk about scoring, CT scoring, and so forth. Um, what is the other thing here? And this is your ultrasound. Lumen black, right? It's air. <clears throat> Thrombus is light gray. So this is, oh, where is, where is my little arrow? So this is the lumen. This would be white hair, right? This is the white area on your CT, and this is all your gray area. I'm not saying it's the same patient. I'm just comparing ultra, please. I'm just comparing ultrasound to CT, so the concept of what you're looking at and how they connect together. If you did not, if this patient could not have done contrast, what would happen is the lumen will be light gray, but you, can, you should be able to see the thrombus because you will have a little bit of a difference between the grays of the thrombus and the blood flowing through the lumen. It's just that contrast just helps us so much more. Okay? So I just wanted you to appreciate lumen with contrast, lumen on an ultrasound, um, thrombus, gray, soft tissue, gray, thrombus, right, on the CT, and then just the calcifications <clears throat> that you see there. Any questions? Okay. Acute cholecystitis. So this should be, we should be able to move along much faster. What do we know about acute cholecystitis? Right upper quadrant pain, specific pain like that, your initial imaging modality is? Is? Ultrasound, thanks. Right upper quadrant ultrasound. Okay, what do you, preferred initial imaging, right? For an acute cholecystitis, what, would, what can you find or what can the report read for you if the patient does have, right? an acute cholecystitis. If it is a calculus cholecystitis, meaning that this, there are stones there, because you can have an acute cholecystitis without stones, okay? 
So an acute cholecystitis can be a calculus or calculus. If it is a calculus called acute cholecystitis, you will see the gallstones. We already showed those, right? Remember, uh, gallbladder, first of all, the patient should be, has to be NPO to do an ultrasound of the gallbladder. Now, if it's an emergency situation, you're gonna have the patients, you know, oh no, you gotta wait four to six hours. But remember, patients who usually have severe acute cholecystitis are already throwing up, right? So they're already in that NPO state, right? Because they're nauseous, they're vomiting, right? So they're anorexic, meaning that they haven't, they can't eat. So that's why the NPO, usually you, you, you can still get a good enough study. The gallbladder wall can be thickened, inflammation. Anytime you have a thickening of a wall, we, we just talked about colitis, right? So if you look at a patient who has ulcerative colitis on a CT scan, you will see the thickening of the walls. So once, once there's inflammation, the walls of the bowel, the gallbladder walls, everything will be thickened. So you have gallbladder thickening, usually greater than three millimeters. The gallbladder will be distended. Why? Because you will have pericholecystic fluid present in the gallbladder. Sounds like what? When we talked about airway disease, right? Uh, not airway, boo, alveolar, right? When we talked about um, consolidation, we talked about having the air space, the alveoli filled with air. Guess what is always usually empty? What is an air, what's a sac, the gallbladder? So now you have the pericholecystic fluid because for some reason the gallbladder is not contracting to get the bile out. So everything stays there and it creates an environment, right, for bacteria to grow, okay? So you have this pericholecystic fluid. You can have a stone impacted in the gallbladder neck depending on if there is a stone and depending on if the stone has positioned itself. So it's not all of these in one, right? These are some of the things you can find, okay? Because if it's an acalculus um, cholecystitis, you're not gonna have a stone impacted in the gallbladder neck. You're gonna have a gallbladder distension. It's gonna be filled with sludge. They call it peri, the pericholecystic fluid sludge. Because when you hear the word sludge, it's like green, slimy stuff, right? Sludge is like dirt, like really mushy. So, so it stays, it settles, it's stuff that settles. And then you'll have focal tenderness. It's called the sonographic Murphy sign because what do you, they do? They have to apply pressure to do the ultrasound and the patient will jump, okay? So that's what they call um, the sonographic Murphy sign. It's the same sign that the patient is having, but in this case, you, it's elicited using the, um, the, oh my God, the probe of the ultrasound, um, the ultrasound probe in trying to do the image. Okay, so here are what? What are those little babies? Looks like beans, peas in a pod. Those are your gallstones, right? So I can have gallstones, and I'm sure we all at some point have gallstones, but it's just that they're not creating, they're not obstructing anything. So they're not obstructing the, the neck of the cystic duct, they're not obstructing the, the common bile duct. They're just they're there, but they're not moving and they're not doing anything. Okay, so when, in this image, so you see the gallbladder, the stones, they're still, um, they're white. They're hyperechoic. 
And then when you look here, what it's showing you here is that the common bile duct is dilated. So if it is that you have um, the cystic duct, is the gallstones are stopping, stopping it from coming out, the, the common bile duct can become dilated. So they measure the common bile duct as well. Okay? Um, so that's your, that's your ultrasound. What did we say if your um, other modalities, what did we say? If your ultrasound is equivocal, meaning that you cannot, yeah, it's there, but you're not quite sure. It doesn't give you a full diagnosis. You can't diagnose completely. We're going to do our coli scintigraphy. Anytime you see the word scintigraphy, you think of nuclear usually uses that term, scintigraphy. Um, what is the secondary imaging that can identify uh -oh, extrabiliary disorders and complications? That's CT of the acute cholecystitis, because now you're getting, you're able to not just be focused in the gallbladder, but now you can see everything from just by the, from the xiphoid process all the way down right into the pelvic area. So CT is really good to determine is there anything else going on, right? that is causing um, any non-specific abdominal pain as well. Because in this case, the patient can have, right, other extrabiliary disorders and complications. Now, if it is that you want to find out if the patient has, uh, if the patient has a non-specific abdominal pain, what does that mean? You cannot relate it to a right upper quadrant pain. That's when you do the CT with contrast. Right? So you see the difference there, right? So CT with the CT without um, the CT scan itself, right? Will, and you, like I said, if it's with contrast, so you're always going to do without contrast first. But the key is that CT can help you in two ways. It can help me without contrast to tell me, okay, you have something going on here, but something else is going on. Let's see what else is, what, let's see what else is um, happening right, as a result of this acute cholecystitis, or it can be, well, um, <clears throat> the gallbladder has the stones, the cystic duct isn't, the common, the cystic duct is open, the common bile duct is not dilated, but why is this patient having this abdominal distension, abdominal pain? Let's use IV contrast, let's see if we can figure it out. Um, when would we, when would we use MRI without contrast? only when the, as a last resort, right? Because we can do right upper quadrant ultrasound on a pregnant woman, right? But if your ultrasound is equivocal and you don't want to expose your patient, right? Especially when gallbladder's here, right? Fetus is there, then you can do MRI without contrast, okay? But that's not something you jump to from the beginning. It has its uh, specificity. And a lot of times, nuclear, by the time you get through a nuclear study, they usually know what's going on. Yes? So, the gold standard The gold standard is your ultrasound. Yes, it is, for co acute cholecystitis. Because it's, so, it's such a small organ and it's so specific. Uh-huh. No, so if you, so the question is if you do, if they do an ultrasound and they're gallstones but the cystic duct is not obstructed, 
right? And what was the other thing? And the common, the common ball duct. You're trying to figure out when would one go. Okay, so usually it's right above. Uh, it's usually uh, ultrasound, right above quadrant ultrasound. If it's completely clear and there's nothing that is questionable, right, then that's it. It's just a patient had a chronic cholecystitis that became, that was exacerbated by what they had to eat. And, but this is not something that's going to, it's just like once in a while, right? If they do the ultrasound and they're not quite sure, they cannot tell if the stones, maybe it's close to the cystic duct, maybe common bile duct, is a little bit dilated, but not as much. If they're not quite sure, like they can't put their finger, their seal of approval on it to say surgery versus no surgery, they'll do a hepatobiliary scan. The cholecystography, which is also called a hepatobiliary scan, a HIDA scan, a DICIDA scan, a mebrofenin scan. They have all different names. The old fogies use HIDA because that's a radiopharmaceutical we used to use before. So I will use What's written there, cholecystography. I'm just telling you when you go out into real life, if they call it a HIDA scan, a mebrofenin scan, a DICIDA scan, you just start thinking of nuclear and for, um, for uh, gallbladder, acute cholecystitis, okay? But that's when, but they will move to that if the ultrasound is equivocal. They, they cannot fully diagnose. Because patients who come in, especially through the ER, and they do a right upper quadrant ultrasound, and they're not quite sure if they need to go and do laparoscopically, they need to go in and remove the gallbladder, or they need to do something with regards to the cystic, the common bile duct or the cystic duct or whatever, they will send the patients for a nuclear scintigraphy, non-invasive function. I know it's there, but is it causing a problem? Ultrasound it says it may be, but I need to know. Is the bile flowing out of the gallbladder to digest the fat, to, 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 create, to do what it's supposed to do with regards to digestion? So what is your typical patient? You guys should remember this from the first one. The, it's always a 40-year-old fat female. They really mean. It's the Fs. You always see that, right? Who just ate fatty foods. Yeah, it's usually the 40-year-old obese female, they always have to get us, they're so mean, um, who just had fatty foods. So that's, that's something that is always like somewhere in there. So the thing with, um, this is the normal, right? So we said before, they go through, you want to start seeing gallbladder, at least within, they say, some, some say 30 to 45, some say 45 to 60, but at least by an hour, we carry it through, right? Here we start off, Nothing, first remember, the liver produces the bile, the gallbladder stores the bile. So you're gonna see the, the radiopharmaceutical is taking tracing, it's a tracing the path of bile. So what's the path? Liver, hepatic ducts, right? Common hepatic duct, all the way down in through this retrograde, in through the cystic duct. Some of it is stored in the, stored in the gallbladder until we need it and then it continues through the common bile duct. That's basically what it's tracing. So that's why we don't see gallbladder here because it's the normal, this is the path, and then the, the sphincter of OD will contract and push the bile into, well, in this case, the radioactive bile into the gallbladder to keep it there. That's why it shows up, and all this is large, is the rest of the bowel. 
in a patient like this, if you look, look at the intensity of the liver. All you're seeing is liver. You see how dark it is? And then even though when it starts emptying out later on, you never, activity is gone from the liver, but you never see the gallbladder. That's acute cholecystitis. And then what some places do is some places will use morphine because they want to speed up the procedure. So some places would use morphine. What would morphine do? Relax the sphincter of OD, so hoping that the bile can push back up in, just to push back the radiopharmaceutical to not have to wait. Patients like this, this 60 minutes, sometimes we do two hours, sometimes we do four hour imaging, sometimes we do 24 hour imaging. It can go a very long time. I used to hate to be on call because we never use morphine, right? Sometimes they use CCK, right? Some places would use CCK. What does CCK do? If the gallbladder shows up like this, but you don't get, but this is missing, it doesn't push out into the common bile duct and it sits there. Some, some um, organizations will use, they use CCK as part of their protocol to force the gallbladder to contract to see if the common bile duct or the cystic duct is obstructed, the cystic duct is obstructed. So we, we were old school. Anyways, and then here, what is it showing here? This, this dark area is showing that the gallbladder is filled with this sludginess. So that's the CT, just giving you an eye there. Any questions? So that was gallbladder, right? That was acute cholecystitis. Remember, you can have a chronic cholecystitis that can become acute. We can all have gallstones that stay there forever and ever, but they never block anything, right? Okay, uh, modality of choice, right upper quadrant, ultrasound. Equivocal nuclear medicine, scintigraphy. Trying to figure out if the acute cholecystitis has anything else going on within the ab abdomen that could create problems, CT without contrast, right? Abdominal distension, but it's not coming from the gallbladder, CT with contrast. MRI without contrast, where you're pregnant, female, last resort, right? That's your last resort. Not the pregnant female, I mean normally, right? Yes? No? Okay, so if you notice now, this is coming back to what we kind of talked about before, where we're going into the generalization mode. Liver dysfunction, it's an organ. What do we want to know? Look, what we can use. We can use CT, we can use MR, we can use ultrasound. You can use everything. So, multiphase CT, method of choice for most hepatic imaging. Right? So, it is with contrast, multiphase. Remember, we talked about the multiphase. Still with contrast, but we don't care about the flow. In. That's not a CTA. You know, multiphase is not a CTA, right? You're, do you recognize? Everybody clear on that. So we have to clarify that from first. A multi-phase CT is not a CTA. It is a CT with contrast, but it's not a CTA. We don't want to know about blood vessels to the extent of that's all we care about. No, what we want to know is what is the perfusion to the liver like in the arterial phase? What is the perfusion like in the venous phase? What does the liver look like even before we injected the contrast? And then what does it look like after we've had the liver um, 
taken up the contrast so we can actually see the structure, the actual tissue of the liver. So that's a multi-phase, different phases of that injection. So what about um, MRI? MRI is mostly for a problem solver because fast imaging techniques like CT helps with motion. MRI, they have to stay still. So that's why. So that sentence, you could, I was reading that sentence, and I was like, that thing could be taken both ways. What that sentence is saying is that with the invention of fast imaging techniques that, has, that can control motion, with that being increased, MRI is only used as a problem solver because motion and MRI do not go good together. And that's what you always have to remember when you're ordering something on a patient. Just because a modality is the modality of choice, it needs to be the modality of choice for your patient as well. Because if you're gonna put a patient under an MRI and the patient is, has tremors, the patient cannot stay still, the patient's claustrophobic, aside from all the contraindications, the patient themselves, you're wasting your time, your patient's time, and your patient will not go back to do a different study that you order because they're not gonna listen to you because they'll lose confidence in you. So remember, all of those things make a difference. What about when you're looking for a screening method for patients with abdominal symptoms and suspected diffuse or focal liver disease? You can do the ultrasound. Because when you go into the ultrasound, when you do an ultrasound, it can help you. I can look at the portal, the portal vein. Do I have portal hypertension? I can look at all the ducts. Are the ducts, hepatic ducts dilated? Okay, so that can give you, that can still tell you um, if a patient has diffuse or focal liver disease, um, hepatitis, right? Any inflammation of the liver, they can use ultrasound to see if they can see if there's a fatty liver or not. And then, um, oh, I just said it, the color flow and spectral Doppler. Um, we don't use, before we used to use uh, radionuclide imaging for hemangiomas and for focal nodular hyperplasia. With the advent of CT, we, that's not something, we don't use nuclear as much as we used to. Can you work in GI and end up having to order a nuclear liver spleen scan on your patient? Yeah. But this is something that's not very common anymore. Um, we used to use it for hemangiomas, because remember, the hemangiomas have their own blood flow, so sometimes we used to use them. But if we, if we are using them, those are the only two cases in which we would. Okay, let's see if we could finish up. Oh, okay. How about we just do cirrhosis, and then we'll leave it for whenever I meet you next time. I thought I was going to finish abdomen today, but I don't. Okay, so this, what do you, where do you think this came from? Look at the presentation. Where does that case come from? That's from your textbook. For you, any of you. Cirrhosis, patient presentation. 42-year-old man presented to his primary care physician, increasing abdominal girth and jaundice. So once you see that abdominal girth and the jaundice, you know that the liver isn't functioning like it should. Because the liver, liver is our garbage disposal, right? It gets rid of everything, um, all, the, all the toxins. So he has had a history of drug and alcohol abuse. So right there, the alcohol abuse should clue you into cirrhosis. So your clinical suspicion is cirrhosis. 
the initial is still sonography because remember we said that when you have the diffuse right screening method for patients with abdominal symptoms and suspected diffuse or local or focal liver disease patient who comes in with increasing abdominal growth and jaundice so you'll do sonography first because you're looking for initial and um, indirect signs and then you will use your multi-phase CT, okay? Which is what we have here. Because patients who have cirrhosis can also uh, can develop what? What's, what's HCC? Hepatocellular carcinoma. Okay, so they use multi-phase CT MRI will come if you're looking at patients who are on the transplantation list because of soft tissue. So once again, what happens with cirrhosis? When a, when a liver is cirrhotic, it is? Well, it depends on the stage, but usually what? It shrinks. First it's inflamed, and then later in cirrhosis, like in this case, it becomes, it's shrunken, right? Because the, the parenchyma of the liver start necrotizing. That's why they're prone to hepatic, um, hepatocellular carcinoma. So in this case, we're looking at this is the edge of the liver. Visceral of the liver, air, right? So now the liver's not taking up its full space in the peritoneal cavity. Another pneumothorax situation. Well, you understand what I'm saying? It's not a pneumothorax, right? It's not, it's not free air. It's just that the space that was fully occupied by the liver is no longer, because the liver now has shrunk. It's not air pushing the liver, like a pneumo, um, like if you have a pneumoperitoneum. No, this is actually um, the liver itself is shrinking. So alcoholism, right? You want to start thinking. As soon as you have that in the patient's history, um, abdominal girl jaundice. Jaundice means that they, they don't have enough parenchyma cells of the liver to do its stuff. So it's not getting rid of um, the waste products, the toxins like it should. Okay, so when I see you guys again, which is not tomorrow, which is next week, we're going to finish up. Um, we'll continue with this slide. And then... I have to figure out when's your next exam. You're like, oh my God, we can't breathe. We didn't even get over chest yet. So when I see you guys again, um, we'll finish this. And then we, the next thing is musculoskeletal. And I know you all say, oh, Miss Ali, that's what you said about uh, abdomen being easier than the other, chest being easier. I didn't say chest was gonna be easy. Nobody could say I said that. Musculoskeletal is memorization. It is. It's just like brain because uh, uh, um, a Jefferson fracture is a Jefferson fracture. It looks that way. It looks a certain way. So I'm hoping there's a little redemption. Okay? So we'll finish this up when I see you guys next. And um, adios. Yeah, because I have a couple of... Don't go. Where is it? Oh. <laughs>
Hello. Hi, guys. So we just wanted to say a few things about um, how to submit the questions to us. This goes for the past exams, this exam that we just took, and all of our future exams. Um, number one, when you go to submit your questions, remember it's not about quantity, it's about quality of the questions. So if you find a question that you have really good supporting evidence for, where multiple of the answers could have been the answer, or all of them, or you know, then go ahead and submit that. Um, make sure that you include all your documentation, but don't just submit questions to submit questions with the excuse on the bottom, this was too vague, this was too broad. You know, make sure that you have supporting evidence, all right? And then the other thing is download the form and then email it to us because what happens a lot of the times is it'll get deleted off of the Google Drive or maybe amongst yourselves accidentally somebody might change something. So make sure that you download the form, fill it out individually, and then send it as well, okay? I just wanted to say to please tread carefully with all the questions that we're gonna argue. We can't just argue the full exam. Like, just be a little conscious of that too. If the question really was unfair and you think that there was two answer choices that could have been correct, that's totally fine. But just tread a little carefully.